Hey everybody, excited to be back in the book of Luke today. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke. We're going to be in chapter 5. And if you want to follow along there on the YouVersion Bible app, uh, all the information is there on the website. Um, So let me just open us up um, in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that um, you are, are, are working in our city, and we thank you that you are working in our lives. And Lord, um, we read these scriptures every week as a way to completely surrender to you um, and uh, t- to have you as our Lord. And so today, Lord, we just ask that you would use these scriptures to mold us and make us um, and uh, to turn us into the kind of people that you want us to be. And so send your spirit today um, to fall upon your people and to teach us your word as we read this passage in Luke. So we pray this in your name. Amen. So we've been reading the book of Luke. We're still, you know, kind of towards the beginning. And we've been seeing the beginning stages of the ministry of Jesus. And in those beginning stages, we've seen a few things. One of the things we've seen, though, is what a a popular healer he was uh, very early on, especially. And um, as he went around, he was healing people. You remember while he was in Capernaum, he healed a whole bunch of people to the point Uh, right after the Sabbath. Do you remember that? Where everybody showed up and wanted to be healed by Jesus. Um, And then he healed, uh, right before that, I guess he healed Simon's mother-in-law, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And so uh, he's been going around, he's been healing people. Um, And we said that the point of these healings was to give people um, a a glimpse of of the kingdom of God, a glimpse of the way that things are supposed to be. Because the world around us is not the way that the world's supposed to be. We're not supposed to get sick. We're not supposed to die. We're not supposed to be uh, crushed by the weight of sin. And so these these healings were sort of Jesus's way to show people, to kind of give them those glimpses of the way that it's supposed to be. And last week, originally the the passage that we're going to go, uh, we're going to read today, I had as part of last week's sermon. So originally, I had the, these two passages together. But as I was writing the sermon, and as I was looking at the one for last week, I realized, boy, this is, if I do both of these together, this is going to be like a two and a, two and a half hour sermon or something. So uh, I decided to split them up uh, into just, you know, an hour and 15 minutes each. Just kidding. Um, anyway, so uh, last week that we read about Jesus and he heals the leper. And if you remember the story, this guy just, it says he's covered in leprosy shows up and he asks Jesus basically, look, dude, I know you can make me well. Will you, you know, are you willing to? And Jesus looks at him with compassion. It says Jesus touches the guy, which is totally unclean. And we talked about clean and unclean. Um, And he reaches down and he heals him, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, completely transformed this guy's life. And so Jesus tells him, but here's the deal. Even though your life now is completely transformed, I want you to go and I want you to tell the priest because that's what the law of Moses says to do. But I don't want you to tell everybody else. Just kind of keep it a secret. Jesus tells this leper not to go spreading the world, uh, spreading the word about what had happened. And while Jesus came to give people glimpses of what the kingdom of God uh, would look like through healing, that wasn't the main part of his mission. That wasn't the main thing that Jesus came to do. The main thing that Jesus came to do, he talks about this in uh, later in Luke. We'll see this. He says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That was his ultimate goal. And so today what we're going to see um, is Jesus uh, kind of doing both of those things, right? Giving glimpses of the healing, but also talking about the salvation that's offered. Um, and so we'll start here in verse 17. Um, So if you have your Bible, follow along. We're going to read verses 17 through 26 today. So here we go. Verse 17, we continue. So just, uh, you know, we read the leper stuff last week, verse 17. um, But on one of those days, as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So... um, One of those days is how this opens up. It doesn't say specifically when. It just sort of, Luke, remember, is not exactly perfectly chronological. Uh, Sometimes he organizes things based off of um, themes and that sort of stuff. And so here's one of those instances. He just says, during one of those days, so this could have been before the leper, after the leper, before Simon's mother, just while he was in this area and he was teaching. So he's loosely connecting it. And he's going around. Remember, he's on the uh, Galilee synagogue speaking tour. So Jesus is traveling around the north 
north part of Israel, the, the area of Galilee, and he's going from town to town, and he's teaching on the Sabbath in all of their synagogues. And one of the times that he was there, a bunch of Pharisees showed up. Now, let's talk about the Pharisees for a second. In our minds, most of us, especially if you've spent any amount of time in church, when you hear the word Pharisee, you automatically think it means they're the bad guys, right? But who were the Pharisees? Well, the word Pharisee, I want to tell you all about the Pharisees here. The, Pharise the word Pharisee uh, means like separated one, the one who set themselves apart. And the Pharisees popped up right after the Maccabean Revolt, which happens kind of in the intertestamental period. If you don't know about that, you can Google it. You can read some cool stuff about that. Um, a big idea about how they started was as an opposition to what's called Hellenism. And this is important. So Hellenism um, was about Greek culture. So Alexander the Great, if you know from history class, Alexander the Great, um, uh, we call him great because apparently it makes you great if you kill a lot of people. So he went all over uh, the, the Near Eastern world and killed everybody and took over and created this empire. And part of the reason he did that was because he wanted to take Greek culture and spread it out to all the other cultures, assuming that his culture was the best, that ethnocentrism stuff that we were talking about last week. So we call him great because he was super uh, ethnocentric, I guess. I don't know why we call him Alexander the Great. Well, anyway, when he died, he split his kingdom into four parts uh, and gave it to four different generals. Um, and so there wasn't one big kingdom. But the idea was when he died, Greek culture then especially spread all over uh, the Near Eastern world. And then the Romans came along and they ripped it off and pretended like all of it was theirs. And so during this time, there were a lot of Jewish folks who were um, integrating Hellenist Greek culture into Jewish culture. And so some of that stuff is like, you know, we know that Jesus and a lot of the apostles often quote this Greek version of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. That all happened because of these, uh, because of the way that Greek culture had spread all over this part of the world. And so as that was happening, the Pharisees were sort of the conservatives who said, absolutely not. We're not giving in to this Greek culture. And so that's how it kind of started. But what was it that they specifically believed? Well, as I was reading about this, there's a guy named Robert Utley. He listed a few things here that kind of explains the, the belief system of the Pharisees. So the first thing is that they strongly believed in a coming Messiah. So these were the guys who were eagerly awaiting the Messiah because they read about it in the Old Testament. And as they read their Old Testament, uh, they read about the king and the, the, the son of David who would come. And so they were waiting for this guy. They also believed that God was active in daily life. So there were other folks at this time who didn't believe this, that didn't think God was a part of our daily lives. He was almost like, uh, we do this in America too, right? In American Christianity even, where we just say, well, I'm going to put God over here for when I need him. But until I need him, he can just stay over here. But as soon as I need him, he better show up, right? There were people who thought that way, not the Pharisees. They thought that God was... Uh, worked into every aspect of your life. Uh, but not only this life, right? They also believed in an afterlife. They believed in resurrection. And this was what one of the big things that set them apart from the Sadducees. The Sadducees believed that after this life, uh, everything just kind of ended. I don't know, you evaporated or whatever, you know, you were um, annihilated or whatever it is. Um, not the Pharisees. They believed in a physical bodily resurrection after this life. And they believed in a heaven where you would go with your actual, you know, your physical actual body. Um, they, they also believed in the authority of the Old Testament, uh, as well as later uh, traditions expounding upon the Old Testament. And so they had, they took their scripture very seriously, but they also took these other books explaining the scripture very seriously, as opposed to some of the other groups. I think it was the Sadducees that only really took the first five books of Moses as their scriptures, and they left the rest of the stuff out. Not the Pharisees. They took the whole Old Testament, the, um, the, you know, the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms, all that stuff. Um, another thing is that they had a very highly developed um, angelology, right? So the study of angels, which was deeply influenced by Persian dualism and uh, a lot of extra biblical literature, right? And so they had this very um, complicated, super thought out and explained um theology of the supernatural, so angels and demons. So they were constantly talking about demons and angels. Now, the Pharisees, that's what they believed, but it wasn't like a centralized movement. The Pharisee movement was a lay movement. It wasn't a major political uh, party. And during this time, right, there were the Sadducees, 
There were the Herodians, there were the Zealots, and there were the Essenes. Those were the four big like political parties. The Pharisees, though, were uh, not not a big group. At the time of Jesus, there were probably only uh, one historian, ancient historian said, um, I don't know where he gets this number exactly, but he said during the time of Jesus, there were probably about 6,000 Pharisees in Israel, which is not a lot considering how many people would have lived in Israel at this time. And on the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling Jewish council, it was kind of like their president, Congress, and Supreme Court all rolled into one group. The The Pharisees were greatly outnumbered by the Sadducees. Um, the whole the Sadducees ran Israel. They were the powerful political party, the high priest and the whole high priestly family. Um, so Annas and Caiaphas, all those guys, they were all Sadducees, um, not the not the Pharisees. So they didn't really have a lot of power, but the Pharisees were hyper-religious, right? Think of, um, I don't know, maybe Orthodox Jewish people today who... Um, how seriously they take their beliefs. And they do. The Pharisees were just like that. But by the time of Jesus, by the time that Jesus came around, they had this huge tradition of expanding on the rules and the law of Moses that had been laid out in the first five books. They had all of these extra rules. And we'll talk about some of this stuff in a few weeks about the Sabbath, right? So the the Sabbath says, you, basically, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And they go, well, what does work mean? And they expand out and give you hundreds of rules about what you are and are not allowed to do um, on the Sabbath. And so that's kind of who the Pharisees are. I think this is a very important point, too. As we read the Gospels, we want to come at this, you know, not with a blank slate because that's impossible, but we want to come at this book and we want to see Jesus for who he really is, but we also want to see the world of first century Israel as it really was. And so what I don't want you to do as we read the book of Luke is when you see the word Pharisee, just automatically think these are the bad guys. Uh, many of them were. Uh, many of them were not. They were religious hypocrites, um, a lot like some, you know, um, a lot like a lot of Christians are today, right? Like we just read about a, um, you know, a guy who, um, a famous Christian leader just kind of had a big hoopla this week, you know, and uh, it turned out he was doing one thing. He was preaching one thing and he was doing a whole other thing. A lot of the Pharisees were like that, but a lot of them weren't. Um, some of them uh were in conflict, it's true, with Jesus throughout the Gospels. But if you fast forward and you go read the book of Acts, so remember Luke is the first part, Acts is like part two, Acts is the sequel, but it's all kind of one book. Um, just like you can't read, I don't know, The Hunger Games or Harry Potter and just read the first book. you got to take them all together. Uh, Luke and Acts are the same way. And so while sometimes they're in conflict with Jesus here in the book of Luke, if you fast forward to Acts, they're usually portrayed in the book of Acts in a positive light, right? There's Gamaliel who sympathizes with the apostles and probably saves their lives. There's uh, later, there's um, Pharisees. Uh, the, the group of Pharisees that are in the Sanhedrin save Paul's life from the mob. And so um, these Pharisees are kind of a mixed bag. They're hyper-religious and they believed all this stuff. And a lot of times, though, they were hypocritical and they were in conflict with Jesus. And so these Pharisees are here and they're sitting in the synagogue and they're listening to Jesus teach. That's what they're here to do. They're here to inspect his teaching. And look at where it says they come from. It says they came, uh, who had come from uh, Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. So these guys were from all over, and they were here especially to hear his teaching, but more than that, to examine his teaching. It says that these Pharisees, you know, they're, um, it says they're Pharisees, and they're also teachers of the law. That's one group. These Pharisees who happen to be uh, teachers of the law, they were religious leaders. And so on the surface, we think, who are they to show up and to uh, examine Jesus's teaching. But the Old Testament actually has a lot to say about false teachers and about false prophets. Like, for example, Isaiah 9, 16 says, for those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. The idea is that God is uh, condemning these leaders and these teachers because they were leading the people astray. And over and over again, the book of Jeremiah has a lot to say about false prophets. Um, over and over again, the Old Testament uh, talks about this idea that there will be a lot of false teachers and false prophets. And the implication then is, so you guys need to watch out for these guys. Don't let these guys become a part of the flock. Don't put them in positions of authority. And Jesus is here assuming the position of authority. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. And so what the Pharisees were doing here, showing up, was not wrong. It was what God told his people to do. 
Here's the problem, though. A lot of times what we see is the Pharisees show up. They would come and examine what Jesus was teaching, and then they would be furious. So when the Messiah who shows up, the one that they've actually been waiting for, uh, comes on the scene and he starts teaching, they don't recognize him. They don't know because they're not really looking for, is this teaching godly? They're looking for, does this teaching move me out of power? What does this teaching say about my belief system that I've built on top of the law of Moses? And so here these guys are, they're sitting here, they're listening to Jesus teach. And then look at this last little sentence here. It says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So this is a little bit of foreshadowing here. Um, Remember what we said last week, um, that this verse here, uh, sorry, verse 16 is a transitional verse. Um, It's directly connected to the two verses around it. So let me read verse 16. It says, "Um, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So Jesus heals the leper. It says that he's becoming very popular because either the leper, the priest, somebody in the leper's family went and told everybody about Jesus. And so the more he heals, the more popular he gets. But verse 16, he would always disappear and he would spend time with his father. And as he did that, he was charging his spiritual batteries. And so Luke now is setting the stage. Jesus spends time with the father. He he charges up. Uh, He's on a full, you know, Tesla charge, right? Um, And he's got, you know, the full, uh, the full range. And uh, he shows up to teach. He's sitting in the synagogue. The Pharisees are there to examine him uh, and to examine his teaching. And he is all pumped up and ready to heal. So what do you think happens? Verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So these friends, they're bringing their buddy who is paralyzed. Normally, uh, when five guys get together, we do stuff like... Um, when I was in high school, we put all the mattresses from our house outside on the lawn and we jumped off the roof. I think I have a picture of that somewhere. Maybe I'll find the picture and put it up. This is what normally happens when five guys get together. Uh, somebody ends up in the ER, although jumping off the roof, nobody ended up in the ER, but look, Hey, if anybody tells my kids, my boys that uh, I jumped off the roof, you're dead to me, by the way, I don't want to have to deal with that. But anyway, that's normally what happens when five guys get together. Um, There's even a subreddit about this called Why Women Live Longer, right? It's just guys doing stupid things. That's not what we see here. These guys are real, actual friends. They have this friend who's been paralyzed. And interestingly enough, in Greek, uh, Luke uses the word uh, that's the more medical term, right? Where Matthew, to talk about how he's paralyzed, where Matthew and Mark, in telling the same story, they use the more common word for just he can't walk. And so this guy is, um, you know, it's not going well. He can't walk. Uh, so these five, these four guys, they take their friend up on, uh, you know, some kind of a stretcher or whatever, um, and uh, uh, they come up to the house where Jesus is, or the synagogue or whatever it is, uh, where Jesus was and he was teaching. It looks like it's a house, I think. Um, uh, and they get up there and the, this crowd is just everywhere and they can't get anywhere near Jesus. That's how popular at this point Jesus was, that they can't even get close to him. Now, imagine how they would have felt right? You, you come up with this plan, you, you get the cot and some ropes or whatever, like uh, in the, the Lumo project video, you know, they had them on ropes and the stretcher and you, you get them there and the crowd is so big that you can't even get anywhere near Jesus. And so me, I personally uh, would have been completely deflated, but not these guys, right? They come up with a plan. Let's drop him through the roof. Um, this reminds me, I have a friend named Eric and uh, uh, he uh, is a, let's say creative dude. And one time he bought a couch and, uh, he measured the couch and it was like custom built, right? I've never ordered a custom built couch, but this was a nice couch, big, you know, big kind of, I think it was like an L shaped couch that came in two pieces. And so, you know, uh, we helped him move it into his apartment, uh, over in the mission district. And we got the first part in the smaller part or whatever, I think. Anyway. And then there was the big part of the couch and it, it didn't fit through the staircase. It wouldn't do it. There was no way. We spent hours trying to figure out, right, how to, like, friends, what is it, pivot? That's what Melissa always says. Every time we move furniture, it drives me nuts. But anyway, you know, we tried to pivot it. We tried to do all the different stuff. It wouldn't go. And then I was just like, dude, this couch is not getting in here. And Eric came up with a plan. Here's what we'll do. We'll lower... We'll mess with the sensors on the elevator door. We'll lower the elevator one floor down to the basement. We'll put the couch on top of it. And then we'll pull the elevator up. 
anyway, he had this whole plan how it was going to work. And uh, every single one of us was like, no, nah, man, I'm not messing with the elevator in this building and falling down an elevator shaft and I'm not going to do it. Eric was a lot more brave than we were. That's the kind of crazy plan that these guys here have come up with. Let's let's put this guy, let's lower him through the roof. This is not something that I think anybody would have um, would have thought of. Now, this is, but this is the plan that they come up with. And so what they're going to do um, is most of these houses in this area and probably even the synagogue would have had a, um, a staircase going up the side of it to, to a, a spot on the roof where there would have been some kind of an overhang, you know, like a nice shady area where they could set up and chill in the shade in the cool of the evening. Um, like when Peter in Acts was praying on the roof and he has the vision about the food coming down in the sheets. That's what he was doing. He was up on the roof. He was chilling. He was praying. Um, and so these guys, they go up there and they think, you know what, we're going to cut a hole in the roof. And Luke says that they, um, let's see, where's the word specifically? They went up uh, doo, 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 and they let him, uh, they let him down with his bed through the tiles. Now, this is hilarious. I mean, I don't know if you think it's hilarious, but as a, a Bible teacher, I think this is really funny. Um, Luke uses this word tiles which means like what we would think tiles. Well, the problem is that most of the houses in Israel uh, didn't have tiles on the roof. Uh, they were just some sort of like clay and whatever mixture, you know, um, and maybe would have had wood and straw and that sort of stuff mixed in. And so there is this crazy huge theological argument between scholars about what does Luke mean by tiles? Was he just using the word tiles because that's what Theophilus would have known? Um, uh, a roof was made out of and Luke had never really been to Israel and, you know, whatever. Uh, some people say, well, no, we found these archaeological finds. Like there are people out there looking for houses with tiles on it. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's kind of funny how much ink has been spilled over this word tiles. I mean, I'm guessing that Luke probably heard this story from somebody who was there and I bet the house had tiles, you know, there are people who found houses with tiles on it. But anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. I just think it's really funny as I was studying this, how much stuff I was reading about the word tiles and how much people were talking about this. But either way, whether it's tiles or straw or and 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 um, and uh, wood or whatever it was, they they pulled the roof apart and then they dropped this guy in there. Now imagine you're in the house for a second or the synagogue or whatever it was. You're in this house, and um, sorry, and you're in this house and Jesus is there and he's teaching. And he's saying, blessed are, you know, whoever will get to that stuff later, exactly what he's teaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. And all of a sudden, the roof starts to, like, drop dust on you. And you're like, what is happening? And then you probably see somebody's hand punch through, you know, and you see a fist come through the roof. Um, it's actually really funny to see something like this come through the roof once. Um, this happened to my brother. He fell through some drywall once. Um and landed on a beam in a very uncomfortable place. And I was at the bottom. I saw his legs come through. You know, it's pretty funny. But that's probably what happened, right? They punch through the roof, and then they start digging, you know, and then they, they lower this guy on these ropes or whatever. And you're thinking, you know, all of a sudden the room is filling with dust, and you're thinking, man, what are these guys going to do? But the big question is, what is Jesus going to do, right? Um, how dare you interrupt my sermon, I don't think I've ever had a sermon interrupted, but that would probably be pretty disjointing and uh, probably pretty. You know, I've been in a church where um, somebody came in uh, screaming at the preacher in the middle of the church service, uh, but it's not happened to me. Anyway, I, it would probably throw me off, but um, but not Jesus, right? Remember what Luke already said about Jesus. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. Verse 20. So look what he does. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Hmm. Uh, who cares about my sin? What about my legs? Right. Is probably what this guy was thinking on the surface. When we read this, this is the big, huh? Like, what are you talking about Jesus? And it is to our ears, but nobody in the first century reading this would have had problems with this. Um, in the first century in almost every religion, especially the Jewish world, uh, sin and sickness were linked. They didn't separate the spiritual and the physical world like we do. Like we, you know, especially like we tend to, right? Uh, Jesus later on would actually unlink them when they bring the guy who sinned, this man or his parents. And Jesus is like, nobody sinned, but he's like this because I'm going to heal him and then God will get the glory, right? So Jesus actually at one point says that not every time you're sick, it's directly connected to sin. But everybody in this room, especially the paralyzed man probably, would have connected this paralysis with sin. And so uh, coming to Jesus to be healed 
was not just, oh, fix my legs and then we'll worry about the spirituality later. Those two things in his mind were, were connected. He was probably coming and when he's showing up and asking Jesus to be healed, it's sort of implied that he's asking to be released from the bondage of sin as well. And so he, he, Jesus looks down at him and he says, it says, when he saw their faith, it took real faith to come to Jesus, right? But what is faith? Most people think faith is just believing something with no basis. I was just watching a TV show where they said this, that, uh, well, you know, faith is human nature. You've got to put faith in something, even if you don't have any kind of a reason to. Um, there's a lot of definitions of faith out there, but that's a really terrible one. The basic idea with faith really is trusting in something. Faith is putting your weight on something, right? Putting your life on something, but not blindly, right? The Bible never encourages blind faith. Um, but it often encourages faith with even very little information. So if you read Hebrews chapter 11, right, the hall of faith, one of the people in Hebrews 11 is Rahab, the prostitute um, who helped save the spies and during the, um, during the, the Exodus time. Um, but here's the thing. How did uh, Rahab have faith? What did she do? Well, she had the very basic story, probably, she had heard uh, that the God of Israel was out there mollywhopping people and that he was saving uh, his people and he was bringing them to the promised land. That's probably all she knew. And she knew that her gods and her people's gods were not the real ones. And so she put her faith with very little information um, in uh, the God of the Bible, right? The, of, of Yahweh. She put her faith in Yahweh. She didn't trust blindly though. And that's what these guys did, right? They had heard about Jesus somehow. We don't know what they had known, what they had heard. Maybe they had heard him teach before, whatever it was, but they they acted on their faith. Their faith led them to do something. They brought their friend to Jesus. They believed that he could really heal. They believed that he really was a man of God, that he was sent by God. And so they acted on that. Um, and they dropped their friend in. And uh, um, Jesus, you know, uh, he looks down at him and and he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. But here's the thing. Uh, the Pharisees aren't, aren't digging it, right? Verse 21, look what happens. And the scribes and the Pharisees, so those teachers of the law and scribes are kind of the same thing. The teachers of the law, the scribes, and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So blasphemy is just... It's where you, you're saying, intentionally saying wrong things about God. You're speaking ill of God. And so that's what they're accusing Jesus of here. And they, they start by saying, who is this guy? Who does, we would say in our culture, who does this guy think he is? Right? This question is a key theme in the book of Luke and, uh, and in the, the book of Acts, right? Is people are constantly asking this question, who is Jesus? And that's why we're reading the book of Luke, because we want to get a better picture of who Jesus is. And so they're like, who does this guy think he is? Right? Who can forgive sins, but God alone? Now, here's the thing. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. And we could go all over the New Testament to find verses about how God forgives sins, but that stuff wasn't written at the time that this happened. So I want to read to you um, I want to read to you from Isaiah 43. It says, I, uh, sorry, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins, right? That's God talking to his people. I'm the one who forgives sins. That verse can't be any more clear. And so I want you to see what Jesus does and doesn't do. As these people accuse him of claiming to be God, and as these people say, only God can forgive sins. He never says, no, 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 that's not true. Other people besides God can forgive sins. That's not what he says, right? Look at what he says. Verse uh, 20, uh, where are we? Uh, 22. Uh, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? So Jesus now, he perceives their thoughts. Uh, people argue over whether this was sort of a miracle or just was he very perceptive? Did he just look over in the corner and see these guys arguing and know what they were talking about? You know, you, you've... Um, you, you've seen this before. Actually, I know what this is like because um, having, um, having kids that are a different race than we are, uh, we see this a lot when we're walking around the zoo or whatever and we see people whispering. We know exactly what they're saying about us, right? Maybe this is what Jesus was doing, but maybe it was miraculous. Um, I, you know, I think it probably was some sort of a miracle. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. Um, either way, it is a terrifying thought to think about that God knows every one of our thoughts, 
right? And the good news is his thoughts are not like our thoughts. Uh, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But every little errant sinful thought that you have, right, God knows about it. That's a complete sidebar. But anyway, Jesus sees that here with these guys. And so he says to them, why do you question in your hearts? Jesus is essentially saying, why are you questioning this? You're here to examine the teaching, right? They're, they're there to examine Jesus's teaching. And they probably listen to him teach for quite a while. And then as they hear him teach, he says all sorts of things. I bet at some point he even talked about the forgiveness of sins. And then this guy drops in and he says, your sins are forgiven. And they're upset. Only God can do that. And Jesus is probably thinking, you just listened to me teach. By this point, you should know who I am. And so verse 23, I love this verse. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? I love this. Jesus basically looks him right in the face and says, all right, guys, let's play a game. Um, just when I think I can't like Jesus anymore, he, he goes and does this, right? This is such an awesome move. It reminds me of the confidence of Doc Holliday in Tombstone, you know, uh, minus the alcoholism, right? But, you know, maybe poker's not your game. Why don't we have a spelling contest, right? Like that kind of, that kind of tough confidence. And basically, this is what he says. You can't prove, you know, I can't prove to the Pharisees, right, that these sins are forgiven. But you've just said only God can forgive sins. But you know what else? Also, only God can heal people. Sometimes he heals through people, but it's only God who can heal. Only God can heal people. Only God can forgive. And so if I can heal this guy, then you also have to believe that I can forgive this guy's sins. That's the bet. So Jesus makes a bet with these guys. Verse 24, then he, he turns and he looks at the guy on the mat. He says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on. And he went home glorifying God. All right. So first, uh, Jesus calls himself the son of man so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Folks like to, when we hear the word son of man, a lot of people just think, oh, Jesus is just describing himself as a real human being. And while that's true, and we did whole sermons, a couple of sermons on the humanity and the deity of Jesus and all that stuff, that's not what the word son of man means or the title son of man. The title for son of man comes from the book of Daniel. And especially these Pharisees would have known this as soon as Jesus said this. They would have flipped out by calling himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man is uh, from Daniel. This is from Daniel chapter 7. Um, it says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds. So Daniel's having this vision. Uh, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, so to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, uh, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So, um... Daniel sees this vision of this son of man who, who God gives all the kingdoms in the world. This is the coming Messiah is the son of man. He's, he's a divine figure. And so Jesus claims to forgive sins. And they say only God can forgive sins. And he says, oh, yeah. And then he goes on and he, A, calls himself the son of man. And then B, he flat out says, I have the authority to forgive sins. This is what he's claiming. He is claiming to be God, to have the authority to forgive sins. So many people I've seen all over say, well, Jesus, you know, he taught a lot of nice things, but he never actually claimed to be God. I don't know how anybody who can read these four Gospels can say that with a straight face. It's not true. All over. I and the Father are one. You know, at one point they even try to stone him because he tries to make himself equal with God is what it says, right? And so here he is. He, he's, he's claiming to be God. And now he says, I'm not only just claiming it, I'm going to prove it. And he bends down, he kneels in front of this guy or next to this guy. And he tells him, hey, dude, get up, pick up your bed and walk away. And the guy does. The guy, the, the paralyzed man picks up his mat and walks out of there. That is crazy. Now, uh, I, I read, I, I was watching something pretty cool this week, you know, about um, um, Elon Musk's Mark of the Beast brain chip. No, I'm just kidding. Don't. That's a joke. Uh, but Elon Musk has this brain chip thing that can read your your brain signals. I'm going to be honest. I barely know how this thing works. But And a lot of people are talking about different applications for this. It can help blind people see. But one of the things that was pretty cool about it was um, 
he said that you could put a brain chip here uh, for paralyzed people who's broken something in their spine, and then you can put one at the base of their spine, and you can send the signals and just bypass the spinal cord, and it potentially, in 10 or 15 years, we could use these brain chips to help people walk. And everybody in the room went, whoa, in the video. And people on the, you know, online were talking about how amazing this is, that maybe we can kind of help people stumble away and walk. This is exactly what Jesus did 2,000 years ago without Elon Musk's brain chip. This is his power. He just bent over and told this guy, dude, pick up your mat and get out of here. And the guy does in front of everybody. And he leaves glorifying God. I loved the end of that Lumo Project video. Uh, I hope you didn't fast forward through that and just come straight to the sermon uh, where everybody was dancing and singing. And that's what we see here in verse 26, the end. So not only was the guy glorifying God, but so did everybody else. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Think of the last thing that you were truly amazed by, like jaw on the floor. Amazing. I don't know what it was. Think like that's kind of what happens here, but like by a million times. And so these people are just blown away and they glorify God. They're filled with awe. And I love it because this is what the kingdom of God is. It's people who are blown away by the goodness and just the awesomeness of God. And when they see him work and they see him just be himself, they can't help but praise him and glorify him. And this is what heaven's going to be. It's going to be God's people gazing at his glory and praising his holy name for all of eternity together. Now, that's our passage, right? I've heard this passage preached a few different ways, and I'm going to be honest. I've taught this passage uh, to the youth group kids a long time ago a couple of different ways, right? Like I've heard it, how to be a good friend, right? Bring your friends to Jesus. Here's five steps of how to bring your friends to Jesus. Um, I've heard one sermon, I saw one sermon on this, talking about the deity of Christ and how Jesus did claim to be divine. Right? Okay, yeah, that's good. Um, all that stuff's true. You know, there, there's a couple of different ways we could go with this. But as we read the book of Luke, what I want to get in the consistent habit of is um, not nitpicking specific details to talk about something, but to ask the question, how does this text fit into the narrative of Luke? And then how does this narrative or this text fit into the narrative of the gospel story? So asking those two questions. So first, remember what Luke has been saying about Jesus up to this point. He's the promised king, and he's here to announce his kingdom. And ultimately, what we're seeing is that his kingdom is the reversal of the effects of sin. And this is kind of the main point of the sermon. Sin is the world's, it's everybody's biggest problem. Now, before I get into this, uh, it needs to be said that that doesn't mean that our other problems in this life are trivial. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Because notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, uh, your sins are forgiven, but who cares that you're paralyzed? That's that's not what he does, right? Um Our problems in this earth matter to Jesus. And so even though, like, you know, your friend's marriage is breaking up, um, that's not their ultimate problem. But it doesn't mean it's not a big problem. It is. It stinks. Um, right? Broken marriages are not the the picture of the way the world is supposed to work. That's the kingdom of the enemy, right? That's not how God wants the world to work. And so we as followers of Jesus should constantly be doing what we can to alleviate the pain and the suffering in this life for the people around us, right? So help that marriage however you can. Um, you know, do whatever you can to help those people. But as we seek to make a difference in the life of the people around us by loving them unconditionally, we can't ever forget that these people, what their biggest problem, oh wait, was that, you guys hear my Alexa? I think that was Alexa. Anyway, we can't, I forgot to turn it off. Uh, We can't forget what everybody's biggest problem actually is. It's the problem of sin. Now, if you ask people today, what's the biggest problem around you? Uh, I found one, you know, you'll get a lot of different answers. I found this list that was um, from Business Insider, and it was, you know, what's the biggest problem in the world according to millennials? And it ranked them from 10 to 1. Um, so I'll just give you some of these, right? It says the lack of opportunity and unemployment. And this article was from pre-COVID stuff, so you can imagine that that's probably um, uh, ramped up even more. Um, safety and security, just feeling like you're safe. You know, we're going through this a little now. We got robbed a week and a half ago. Uh, our place got broken into and it stinks, right? Like violated. And I feel, um, you know, like, you know, uh, our privacy was violated. Our stuff was taken. There's a lack of safety. Um, another one they said was a uh, lack of education. So people around the world don't have access to education and a lot of the educational systems are broken. 
Um, next, they had food and water security. So you've heard me talk before about uh, Matt Damon's water.org, um, where they're doing a lot of this sort of stuff, uh, water and hygiene all over the world. Um, next on the list was government corruption. So I've been every night when I go to bed, I listen to um, some podcasts. One of them is the BBC World News podcast. Um, and I like it because it's not American, right? They talk about news from all over the world, not just what Trump tweeted today. And um, almost every day the last couple of weeks, they've been talking about Belarus and the corrupt government in Belarus and how Vladimir Putin is propping up, uh, I don't remember the guy's name, something, Chanko, Chanko, something, I don't know. I don't remember the guy's name, but this this corrupt president who totally stole this election in Belarus. And so, you know, that's happening all over the world, government corruption. Uh, next, they put religious conflict, so people of different religious groups fighting each other. Uh, they talked about poverty. And even though across the board, uh, the world's poverty levels are, are you know, the, 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 the what's the word? Um, you know, how well we're living is going up. There's still a lot of people around the world in poverty. And Corona, I was uh, they were talking about this on the World News Podcast too. Uh, corona is hitting India crazy hard. And so it's taking people who are already in poverty and dropping them even below that, right, to just adverse poverty. Um, inequality is another big one. So a lot of people at the top have a lot of money. Um, war, obviously, you know, um, I'm watching Band of Brothers right now. Boy, war stinks. <laughs> Um, and, you know, it's happening all over the world still. Um, and then climate change and the issues of environment, right? And so that, that was a list that they came up with, you know, and I was thinking about some other ones, right? Like if you asked other people, they'd probably list something like sickness and disease, cancer, AIDS. Oh, and I don't know if you've heard of COVID-19. Um, other environmental issues that aren't global warming related exactly, you know, just trashing our planet. You know, what is it? Garbage island floating around the Pacific. That's disgusting. Um, and then one of the biggest problems in our world today is that the Dodgers are the best team in baseball, and it makes me very sad, and somebody needs to do something about that. Now, as serious as some of these issues are, and then the Dodgers issue, uh, none of them are the main problem in the world. None of them. That's not the biggest. These are all real, very real problems that really stink, but they pale in comparison to what's the real problem. Um, I told you guys on the Zoom call, was it last week, that I've been studying Ephesians just for kicks, you know? I mean, I always try to study something that I'm not teaching uh, just to feed my own soul. So I'm reading Ephesians a bunch, and uh, I'm reading this one specific commentary as I go along by William Hendrickson um, in his commentary on Ephesians. And it's funny because I just came across it this week. As I was writing this sermon, he's talking about some of the big needs that are like exactly what we're talking about here. And uh, he says, he says this, another, I'm picking this up in the middle of a paragraph, so don't worry about this. But another is the misapprehension of man's basic need. Uh, the need is nothing less than the removal of the load of guilt, which he, by nature, a child of wrath, and then he quotes from Ephesians 2.3, is oppressed. What he needs is more than job rehabilitation, which he was talking about earlier. He needs reconciliation to God. Ephesians proclaims that for all true believers, there is a great blessing that has been provided by the means of the vicarious atoning death of God's own son, Ephesians 2.13. The motivation for this supreme sacrifice was his great love, and then he quotes Ephesians 2.4. So he's saying basically the same thing I think that Jesus is showing here in this passage, right? That the greatest need in our world is to fix this problem of sin. And so how this comes into play in our own lives is we're reading the Art of Neighboring book and we're thinking about some of this stuff. The main problem in the lives of our neighbors probably isn't what they think the main problem is. They think my failing marriage is the biggest problem in my life. My unemployment is. My cancer is. And this might sound insensitive, but to be blunt, the gospel story says none of those are the biggest problem in your life. Right? None of those are the main problem. That it, They're not. In fact, compared to the main problem of sin, that stuff is small potatoes. The problem of your sin, your rebellion against God Almighty is your ultimate problem. Right? You see, unemployment sucks. But that only lasts so long. A broken marriage sucks, but the consequences of that will only last, you know, basically for this lifetime. Cancer sucks, but cancer won't hurt you once you're dead. But that's not true of sin. The consequences of sin are eternal. Uh, eternal separation from God, facing his wrath. What we're dealing with here is serious stuff. And so for us followers of Jesus, what we know is that the gospel gives us a perspective where the world has none. Um, it's like, 
Um, uh, one of my favorite movies I've seen in the last couple of years was this movie called Free Solo. It was a documentary about this guy, Alex something or other, uh, who climbs crazy high mountain, you know, rock faces with no ropes. The guy's insane, by the way. Um, and even though I saw him describing the movie, anyway, this movie is about him climbing El Capitan, the big rock face at Yosemite with no ropes. First person to ever do it. And actually, at some point, I saw him on Jimmy Fallon or something talking about this movie and how he climbed it and everything. And so I, I knew he made he made it right. But as I was watching this in the IMAX theater, I was sweating and oh man, this was like the most gut wrenching movie I've seen in a long time. Anyway, so right in the middle of it, one of Alex's friends says tomorrow, as they're thinking about his climb, tomorrow could be the end of Alex's existence. And I remember thinking in the movie theater, no, right. Even if he falls splat on the ground, as horrible as that would be, his existence is eternal. His existence is going to keep going past the point where he hits the ground below El Cap. Uh, John Hooper was a British pastor who was executed by Bloody Mary, if you know about the English Reformation and, you know, uh, Bloody Mary. Um, And he died a martyr. He was burned at the stake. But he lived his life with a real eternal perspective. And he said this. This is his quote. Life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. That's what they that was him right before he died. Here is my fear, that too many of us are living our lives like death is the end of our uh, end of the road, like it's the end of our existence. And that is absolutely foolish. Um, I just did a big motorcycle trip that I keep talking about in these sermons because, let's be real, it was a ton of fun. Thousands of miles. I drove through 113, 15 heat in Arizona, crazy wind at some spots. I got stuck in a hailstorm. I had tons of bike maintenance. The bike broke down in Texas. I'd fix it on the side of the road. Now, what would have happened if I didn't plan for that whole trip? What would have happened if I only planned uh, for enough to get me, you know, from my house to the bottom of Knob Hill? What if I didn't pack my gear for the cold weather? What if I didn't pack my tools? What if I didn't bring my wallet? What if I didn't make reservations for hotels? It would have been a miserable trip. And that's exactly how so many followers of Jesus are living this life. They're ignoring the biggest part of the trip, the biggest part of their existence. We can't live like this. It's narrow-sided, it's not biblical, and it's irresponsible. And it's irresponsible to the people around us. Um, One of the things that bugs me about theology is um, when it becomes theoretical. We debate the finer points of theology and we argue while forgetting that what's really here at stake is the fate and the lives, the eternity of the people around us. Um, There was a book that came out a few years ago, and I read it a few times and I really can't stand it, and it's called Love Wins. It's by Rob Bell. And basically in this book, Love Wins, Rob Bell denies the theology of hell. And so uh, as a response to that book, Francis Chan, who um, is in Asia somewhere now, uh, but he was a pastor here in San Francisco for a while, and he's been kind of all over. Um, He wrote a book called Erasing Hell about the theology of hell. And uh, I want to read to you this lengthy passage because this is the best place that I've ever seen this kind of eternal perspective is this passage here. He says, as I write uh, this chapter about hell. I'm sitting in the midst of a Starbucks, a busy Starbucks. We'll forgive Francis Chan for drinking Starbucks instead of St. Frank. Every time I look up from my computer screen, I see that I'm surrounded by thirsty customers racing to the counter to fuel up on lattes and iced teas and mochas. Uh, They're happy, they're busy, enjoying life and laughing, chatting, and of course they're texting. Two moms look as if they've done, uh, they've just gone jogging and they sit next to me digging into each other's life. Another couple just left. Uh, They were all over each other, a typical young couple without a care in the world. The girl in line, the girl last in line, looks really sad, like really sad. Uh, It makes me wonder what just happened in her life. And what about the employees? Are they happy? Some look that way, but others don't. I've seen that in Starbucks, right? Uh, Joy, laughter, coffee, jazz, well, smooth jazz, Uh, texting, talking, flirting, friendship, depression, and the hope to be freed from it one day. This is life. I love it, and so do they. The place buzzes with life. Meanwhile, I sit here reading passage after passage after passage, which all say that some of these people are going to hell. It sickens me to say that, and I can't explain how conflicted I feel right now. There are at least a dozen people within 10 feet of me right now, right here, right now, that may end up in agony, the agony that I'm studying. What do I do? 
Do I keep writing, keep studying? Should I bag this whole book thing and start building relationships with them? How can I believe these passages and then sit here silently? I know that some of you have faced the same conflict. Even as you're reading this, there are probably people within a few feet of you who may also go to hell. What are you going to do? It could be that the Lord wants you to put this book down. Come face to face with these passages on hell and ask these tough and heart-wrenching questions. It forces me back to a sobering reality. This is not just about doctrine. It's not about destinies. And if you're reading this book and you're wrestling with what the Bible says about hell, you cannot let this be a mere academic exercise. You must um, let Jesus' very real teaching on hell sober you up. You must let Jesus' word, words reconfigure the way you live, the way that you talk, and the way that you see the world and the people around you. Sin really is the world's biggest problem because this is what sin leads to, right? Eternal separation from God. And every sin, because of sin, right, every single one of us, right, deserves the wrath of God for all of eternity. Right? But just like this guy in our passage, if we, if we come to Jesus, we can hear the amazing words, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Right? Daughter of God, your sins are forgiven you but not freely. That forgiveness that Jesus gave this guy, that he offers us, that forgiveness comes with a great price. You see, he is God, just like he claimed to be. He is the son of man, but he's not, he's the God who lowered himself to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross, right? He paid the price. The great price that it takes to fix this problem of sin, we don't have to deal with it. He does. He's dealt with the biggest problem in our world. He offers us forgiveness of sins. And so that's why we can trust him with all of the smaller problems, because we've already seen him take care of the big problem. That's why we can worship him and praise him and thank him. And that's why we can pray to him about our neighbors. Um, As we talk about the art of neighboring, and we've been talking about this a bunch and reaching our neighbors and befriending and loving our neighbors. The most, this is the most important starting place is to realize that in the lives of our neighbors, their biggest need is to be freed from the power of sin and brought back to the father that they were created to be in perfect communion with. And so because that is true, the most important thing that we can do for our neighbors is to pray for them constantly, to talk to God about them, because he alone is the one who can melt hearts. And he is the one alone, uh, he alone is the one who can offer forgiveness of sin that they need and to be set free from the bondage of sin. And so I want to be a people who is completely wholeheartedly obsessed with praying for our neighbors specifically. So let's do that um, right now. Lord, we, um, we've been writing names on lists and filling out our block maps and thinking about our coworkers and our friends and our neighbors and you know, the, Lord, these are not projects. These are people that you love and that you want to love through us. And so I just pray that your spirit would melt our hearts and break down the pride that keeps us from loving them well. And I pray, Lord, you know, for, for you to save them, for you to reach down and to, to snatch them up into your arms and to just shower them with your grace. Lord, I say it a lot, and I really do mean it, that you know, we want to we get into the new heavens and earth. And we want to see just a lot of people there from San Francisco. We want to see our coworkers, our friends, and our neighbors freed from the biggest problem in their lives, right? in their existence, the power of sin. And we know that that's what you do. That's why you came. You came to seek and to save the lost. And so, Lord, we know that we have so many friends and neighbors in the city who are lost. And we're asking you, to use us however you want. But ultimately, Lord, we're asking you to seek them out. So we just pray these things in your name. Amen.